Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991. To Boston, Bloomberg 1200. To San Francisco, Bloomberg 960. To the country, Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. And good morning. I'm Karen Moscow, along with Tom Keene and Michael McKee. And the opening bell brought to you by Sector Spider ETFs. Why buy a single stock when you can invest in the entire sector? Visit SectorSPDRS.com or call 1-866-SECTOR-ETF. Stocks lower at the open. The S&P 500 down to tenths percent or four points to 2076. Dow Jones Industrial Average down a tenth of a percent or 21 points to 17,876. And the Nasdaq's down four tenths percent or 19 points to 4918. Ten-year Treasury down four thirty seconds. The yield 1.76 percent. Yield on the two-year 0.74 percent. Nymex crude oil down 4.4 percent or a dollar 78 to 38.58 a barrel. Comex gold is up six tenths percent or seven. Dollars ten cents to twelve forty one eighty an ounce. The euro a dollar thirteen oh one. The yen one oh eight point five nine. Tom and Mike. Karen, thank you so much. Um, so much. It is a west east east west travel. Very often we don't think north south from America down to Brazil or for that matter from Europe to Africa. North south is a different thing. Shannon O'Neill is Rockefeller senior fellow for Latin America at the Council on Foreign Relations, and she's had the courage over her career to always be looking uh, north to south out of uh, Yale and Harvard University. Dr. O'Neill, good morning. Your your book is Two Nations Indivisible, which is about Mexico. Let's talk about Brazil as a nation. Is it two nations this morning with all this talk of impeachment? It is two nations this morning, and we saw yesterday a long and somewhat torturous process, but the lower house of representatives vote for impeachment. About 75% of them decided that this current president, Dilma Rousseff, should be impeached. But we do need to remember there were 137 votes to support her, to keep her in power. And we look back, Brazil had an impeachment proceeding in 1992 against the president then, And when he went up for this vote, there were only a handful of people that supported him. Here, Dilma has a real support, and so that shows that there's huge divides within Brazil society about what should be done. What should be done? Uh, I mean, the easy answer is to say they need to fix the economy or or, or get some of the graft out of the government. But how easy is it going to be to carry that out? I mean, this is the challenge the new government will have. There's a couple more procedures that need to go forward, but it looks like by beginning to mid-May, the vice president will step in and become the president, at least while then the Senate goes forward with the actual impeachment proceedings. So the vice president, Tamara, will need to pull together a coalition. He'll put new ministers in all of the different ministries and try to begin this reform process. But he will come in with a bit of a question of legitimacy. This isn't an election. It's an impeachment proceeding. Uh, And there's also a real challenge. How do you pull Brazil out of a recession that's now near, you know, down 4% so far this year? If surveillance jets down $8,199, rounded up $8,200, business class round trip American Airlines to Rio, what do we find? I can't figure out, Shannon, the protests in the street, the linkage to Mr. Lula, the Rousseff, all the corruption, where is the public? So the public here is somewhat divided. 
There are many people, they're tired of the recession, they're tired of hearing about the corruption scandals, much of which are being uncovered by an independent judiciary. But they're seeing the whole political class, much of the elite business class, implicated in these scandals. So there's a real frustration, and you see that in opinion polls. Vilma Rousseff's public opinion support has been near 10% for the last several uh, months here, so she has very little support, the frustration of the general public. But there are supporters from her party, the Workers' Party, that's been in power for 12, 13 years. Many of them have come out of poverty under Lula and then her presidency. Many are worried about falling back, that a new government might not keep the social support of the other things that help them move up the economic scale. So there's a real uncertainty here, particularly within the base that has traditionally supported her and her party. Well, Vice President Turner doesn't have great uh, public opinion numbers either. What do we know about him? Exactly. So there's a poll that said 60% want Lula, or excuse me, Dilma impeached, and then 58% wanted Tamer impeached. So it's not as if he comes in uh, with a huge goodwill or, or backing of of the general population there. He is a long-standing, very traditional politician within Brazil's system. He's been around for a long time. He comes from a party that is a very centrist party. It's the biggest party in Brazil in terms of local offices and the like that they hold. But they really have no ideology. They've been, many would say, a party for hire over the last couple of, of decades as Brazil's democracy has grown. Uh, and so they'll go with either... Uh, a more conservative coalition, a more a more progressive coalition, um, but what they want are posts and what they want are financial resources. So he also has the challenge within his own party, one of pushing forward a reform agenda, which he said he will do, and he put forth a paper last at the end of last year saying that this is what he would do if he came into power. But he's going to be a bit at odds with his own party, of which there's many mayors, there's many local representatives who are going to be searching for state resources, particularly as Brazil heads to its own midterm elections and mayoral elections, which come up next October. I, I look, Shannon, at this, and you know, in, in the blocks that we have with you today, this half hour, tell me about the adjacent effects that we see, the adjacent effects that we see on South America. Does it have a knock-on effect, or is Brazil a discrete moment just for Brazil? It has knock-on effects, and probably the biggest knock-on effect we'll see is in Argentina, and that is right now a much better story, right? We had 12 years under the Kirchner government, also a very populist government, and that has come to an end. Mauricio Macri now is a very center or center-right, very market-friendly government, is trying to turn around Argentina. In his first 100-plus days, he's unified the exchange rate, he's reduced subsidies, he's resolved the problems with the debt holdouts. He's really bringing Argentina back to to the markets, the global capital markets. But Brazil is Argentina's largest trading partner. And so what's happening in Brazil is hitting the Argentine economy, and particularly its manufacturing sectors, its automotive and other manufacturing sectors, because they're so linked. So as Argentina tries to climb out of its own economic problems and is making the right steps reform-wise, policy-wise to do so, they're getting hit by what's happening in Brazil. The uh, the question then becomes, uh, how quickly does Brazil get over this um or, or are we going from the frying pan to the fire? You know, I don't see a quick turnaround in Brazil. We saw the markets are, are happy about this. The real has been strengthening over the last week or so because of this. The other markets are, are jumping up. 
But I think this is a longer-term prospect. And Brazil, it may be an interim government that can make a few reforms that are necessary, mm-hmm. um, but they're really going to have to wait till you get democratic mm-hmm. legitimacy back. And that might be 2018 when we see another presidential election. Coming up, we'll continue with Shannon O'Neill. Dr. O'Neill, she's the only one in the nation, Mike, who has priced out the wall between the U.S. and Mexico <laughs> to the square foot. She waited across the Rio Grande to figure out the price of the wall. Uh-huh. <laughs> we'll talk to Shannon O'Neill about Mexico. This is a, with great respect, particularly for all of our listeners on Sirius and XM across the great uh, Southwest and into Texas, this is a, a huge topic. And we'll talk to Shannon O'Neill about it. Mike, what do you have over there? What do you see? Well, just uh, seeing no real reaction to the uh, home builders' numbers this morning, yeah. and a lot of reaction continues at least in equity markets, to oil prices, uh, yeah. you know, they're they're dragging down equities again today. On a 418, uh, you wonder how the economy gets into April. We're beginning to get some glimmers of that. We'll do that for you much through the week. The Dow negative 34, 17,862, the first print on the VIX, a 0.77 point move, 1439. This hour of surveillance is brought to you by Mount Kisco Volvo. Visit MountKiscoVolvo.com. Here's Michael Barr with news headlines. Mike Tom, the death toll from this weekend's earthquake in Ecuador is at 272. Buildings were flattened by the devastating 7.8 earthquake along the Pacific Ocean coast. World leaders from Washington to the Vatican are offering their support to Ecuador. It was on this day in 1906 the devastating San Francisco earthquake took place. This is the first year where all of the survivors of the quake are gone. Texas Senator Ted Cruz is responding to allegations from Republican rival Donald Trump that Cruz is trying to steal the presidential nomination by rallying delegates in smaller states. Cruz, during a town hall on ABC's Good Morning America today, called Trump a sore loser. In those five states, starting from Utah, North Dakota, Wisconsin, Colorado, and Wyoming, 1.3 million people voted in those five states. And he lost all five. We have won five in a row. And Donald's upset, so he's throwing a fit. The elite women have started running just a few moments ago in the 120th running of the Boston Marathon. The elite men will begin in less than a half hour. About 30,000 runners from almost 100 countries will take part in the race. Security is tight along the 26.2-mile course. Global News, 24 hours a day. I'm Michael Barr. Mike Tom. Michael, I'm not running this year. Oh, shoot. Uh, and you could win it. I once thought about it long ago. Yeah. <laughs> long ago. There's a line there. Long ago <laughs> and far away. It is a magical event, the Boston Marathon. Yes. Good morning, Bloomberg 1200. Bloomberg Surveillance is brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. To them, every day is Earth Day. They are committed to bringing higher finance to lower carbon. Merrill Lynch, Pierce Center and Smith, member FSIPC. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by National Realty. 30% returns on cash and rented real estate. Find them at NRIA.net. 
U.S. stocks are joining a decline in global equities and currencies of commodity exporting nations are slumping as crude oil tumbles after talks between major producers ended in Doha without any agreement on limiting output. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. And the S&P 500 is down two tenths percent or three points to 2077. Dow Jones Industrial Average down less than a tenth of a percent or 12 points to 17,885. The Nasdaq's down four tenths percent or 17 points to 4920. Ten-year Treasury down 7.30 seconds. The yield 1.77 percent. Yield on the two-year 0.74 percent. NYMEX crude oil down three and a half percent or a dollar 40 to 38.96 a barrel. COMEX gold up three tenths percent or four dollars 20 cents to 12.39 an ounce. The euro a dollar 13.02 and the yen. Is it 108.80? Morgan Stanley joining the parade of Wall Street banks that beat profit estimates by cutting costs to counter a drop in revenue from fixed income and equities trading. Its shares now down about three-tenths percent at $25.70. Confidence among U.S. home builders was little changed in April, indicating the housing market lacked momentum as the spring selling season got underway. And that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, uh, thank you so much. Uh, this is something I really look forward to. Shannon O'Neill, who's provided sanity on international relations, uh, migrating south from the United States, on Cuba, on Brazil, as we've been talking, on her main focus, which is Mexico. Shannon, and I say this with great respect for both sides of the debate, is the discussion about a quote-unquote wall on the border that much different now than in 2006? 10 years ago? You know, some of the rhetoric is is a bit different and and some of the descriptions of Mexicans and why we need a wall is a bit different. But we did see from 2006 on after the elections and and after some of these discussions, we saw a big buildup in spending on the U.S.-Mexico border. We saw a huge increase in the number of of people, of of patrols, of of customs and border officials there. So we have been, as a country in the United States, with bipartisan support, investing in security along along that border. And we do have a wall, some 700 miles worth of wall, in areas that make sense to actually have a wall. And I think there's a lot of discussions and papers written about whether a wall along the whole 2,000-mile border makes any sense in terms of economics and in terms of what we actually want to do. Um, But this is an area, actually, the United States has invested pretty significantly over the last 10 years to increase right. security there. And, and, Mike, this comes out of H.R. 4437, the Border Protection Anti-Terrorism and Illegal Immigration Control Act, which I believe was 2005, yeah. which I'm, I'm afraid to ask Dr. O'Neill, how many thousands of pages was that? <laughs> Way too many. <laughs> I, I want to go back even farther, 1986. We had a, a, an amnesty program uh, largely built around agricultural workers. But what impact did that have? Is there any learning experience there? There is. So under President Reagan, we had a bill or we had a law that granted a path to citizenship for many, many uh, undocumented immigrants in the United States. Uh, there were just over 2 million that were Mexicans. Um, and what's quite interesting about that is many did uh, get a green card, did become part of our process, but actually many fewer became U.S. citizens than I think either side of the aisle would have thought. And so we only had about a third of those people. So now, right, that's almost 30 years ago. Only about a third of those actually became U.S. citizens. And that does give some evidence for this idea that's out there that 
Mexicans come here, they want to work, they want to provide security for their family, and then they want to go home when they've finished that part of their career and they've provided some money back home. And that was what played out back in 1986 and in the preceding years. And could, again, if we had another comprehensive immigration reform, that would give a path right. to citizenship. In my 1990, a 66-mile fence along the California coast from San Diego to the Pacific Ocean. Well, we've had a series of, of fences, uh, another one in the last couple of years, um, Shannon. Uh, they don't seem to make much of a difference. This isn't really the way to patrol the border. And as Janet Napolitano, when she was governor down there and then she went on to be head of Homeland Security, she had a quip that said, you know, show me a 50-foot wall and I'll show you a 51-foot ladder. And, and so this isn't necessarily the way to get the security that we want. Um, but we have, as I said, we've invested a lot. We've invested in people. We've invested in technology. And we have seen a decline in the people coming over the border. Part of that's economics, but part of it is the security that's been put in place over this last decade. Now, uh, obviously, this is all in the fertile mind of one Republican candidate who doesn't seem to understand how any of this works, but uh, if uh, if if he were elected, and there seems to be a small chance of that, uh, and wanted to stop remittances, uh, would that be possible? It would be very difficult. Um, these are individual transactions from private individuals to private individuals in the other country, so they don't really flow through governments as such. Um, it would be a huge hit for companies like uh, Western Union and others, but perhaps also for banks because there would be more regulation in trying to decipher what is a remittance versus what is a, a general transaction that's going between these two countries. And we also have to remember over the last 20-plus years the amount of trade, the commerce, the companies that work mm -hmm. on both sides of the border has exploded. There's over half a trillion dollars worth of goods that moves back and forth every year. And so there's a lot of money moving back and forth to keep factories open on both sides of the border. So there's a, there's a right. lot of flows, and you're trying to pull out a very few and see which ones are happening between people who are right. undocumented in the United States. And, and it's a very complicated process. So, so if we have a, try to have a sane discussion on this hugely emotional issue with your expertise and deserve it acclaim, if Shannon O'Neill of that incredibly leftist New York City group, CFR, parachuted into the Latin American Studies Program of the University of Arizona, Tucson, Arizona. What's the debate you perceive among the Americans most invested in this border debate? What would, you, what would we see or you see among the people of Arizona? You know, I was down there speaking just a couple months ago, and what's really fascinating to me is the debate in Arizona seems to be moving away from where it was a few years ago when they passed a law to, to go after anybody who might possibly be undocumented and, and really cracking down on that part. And what you see the businesses there, big ones, but also medium and small-sized ones, they see their future linked to Mexico now. When they look for consumers, it's a small state with not a big population. When they look to who they could sell to, Mexico is at the top of their list, right? There's lots of consumers on the other side of that border. So I do think even in states like Arizona, which became the poster child for an anti-American point of view, you're seeing a huge shift there as they see the benefits of trade with Mexico and the benefits of the back and forth growing. Uh, let's be realistic here and uh, talk about um, what's likely to happen. Uh, it is likely that 
Hillary Clinton will be elected president. Um, where then does the U.S.-Mexico relationship go? Where are we now and where does it go? Well, Hillary Clinton has spent a lot of time when she was Secretary of State working with Mexico. Under her tenure, there was an expansion and revamping of the Merit Initiative, which is the security cooperation that between the two countries begun under President Bush. Um, she spent a lot of time uh, on immigration issues. We've heard that a lot on her campaign and in the past, and obviously Mexicans and Mexican-Americans are a big part of that. So I think those two things push forward. I mean, one of the big questions is what happens on trade. This is obviously quite important between our two nations. Uh, we see not just a lot of back and forth, which I mentioned, but also really the integration of companies where something is made in Mexico, something is made in the United States, and is put together on one side of the border or the other. So I think there's a real question under a Clinton administration what happens to TPP, of which Mexico and, and many other countries are a part. Um, but I do think we see a pretty positive relationship. We see the continuation of Obama's deepening of the relationship between the two countries and, and moving forward on, on many sides. Uh, one final question quickly, if we, we could. I mentioned Carlos Gutierrez the other day as someone maybe with a different view, uh, former Secretary of Commerce within the Republican uh, Party. Where do these people go in the debate after November? Where does establishment, Republican, Latin American debate, where do they head after what we've observed and after what we do to get to Election Day? I mean, I think that's the big question for Republicans in general. Where do you head after Election Night, depending on who becomes their candidate sure. between the two leading ones today um, and whether one of those could possibly win? But there is, I, my impression is, is a feeling that there will have to be a bigger national conversation here about what the two parties uh, want to represent, because overall, in, in my take, three of the five leading candidates are anti-establishment figures. So obviously on both sides mm -hmm. of the aisle, there are people who feel they're not being represented by the traditional mm -hmm. parties. Dr. O'Neill, thank you so much. Shannon O'Neill, and folks can't say enough about her book on uh, Mexico, Two Nations, uh, indivisible Mexico and in the United States. Uh, just a superb uh, one-volume read on all of Mexico. Michael, what a great way to start the week. Daniel Jurgen, Shannon O'Neill. Phil Verliger. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's just been, and uh, Richard Haas. We don't yeah. uh, leave him aside. And it is the week of the Queen's <clears throat> birthday. We will celebrate here well, on Surreal. We'll talk a little bit about it. We've got, uh, of course, economics this week. Uh, we'll go beneath the headline data on the housing economy. We are produced... By Kieran Buchanan, Ken Fellow, our global technical director. It's Bloomberg Surveillance.